So, is that coming through? Okay, so we've been here together and practicing together for just about a day now, perhaps a little over, depending where you count it from. And I'd like to just take a little time to reflect on really what we're doing, what we're engaged in. Perhaps we could frame this reflection in terms of a, a question as to what is it that really matters for us and in life. It's not easy to do what we've been doing here. I'm guessing that anyone who may not have had some understanding of that when they arrived will have probably got one or two clues or inklings in that direction just in the course of 24 hours in ways that may or may not be as we expected. There are kind of challenges in this process, simple as in some ways it is and appears. And uh, I recently encountered an article on some research that actually comes from America um, that was striking in terms of this... uh, the challenging element of what we're doing here, or at least one aspect of it. And it was in the, um, it was in the, the English newspaper, The Guardian, on the 4th of July this year. Some significance for, for American people, I think. The 4th of July, is that a, it's an important day? It doesn't have anything to do with the article, but that was the day. And it um, is entitled, How Sitting Down and Doing Nothing Proved Shockingly Difficult. Does this sound familiar? So it's the editor of the science section, and uh, I'm actually going to read it rather than try and summarize it. I think it's kind of useful. It was not so much how hard people found the challenge, but how far they would go to avoid it that left researchers gobsmacked. (laughs) The task? To sit in a chair and do nothing but think. So unbearable did some find it that they took the safe but alarming opportunity to give themselves mild electric shocks in an attempt to break the tedium. The report from psychologists at Virginia and Harvard universities is one of a surprising few to tackle the question of why most of of us find it so hard to do nothing. And there's uh, actually 11 separate studies that uh, researchers say, having done them, people hated being left to think, regardless of age, education, income, or amount they use smartphones. And so they started these experiments, I won't actually read it all, they started these experiments first of all with just some students who were um, invited in without to sit alone without books, phones, or anything to write with into an unadorned room and told to just sit there and think. Only rules were they had to stay seated and not fall asleep. Again, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? They were informed that they would have something like, you know, five to 15 minutes by themselves alone in this way. And when they were questioned afterwards, they said they didn't enjoy it. In fact, they struggled to be there. And this was interesting. So they experimented more widely and uh, not just students, but farmers and... um, from a church and uh, various other people. And as I said, the most staggering thing was yet to come, to check whether people might actually prefer something bad to nothing at all. 
the students were given the option of administering a mild electric shock. All of the students picked for the test said they would pay to avoid mild electric shocks after receiving a demonstration. And yet, to the researchers' surprise, they, they said they'd pay to avoid them before they did this experiment. Uh, to the researchers' surprise, 12 or out of 18 of the men and 6 out of the 24 women actually gave themselves shocks. Um, one of whom actually did it 190 times in the space of 15 minutes. <laughs> and the researchers comment here, what is striking is that simply being alone with their thoughts was apparently so aversive that it drove many participants to self-administer an electric shock that they had earlier said they would pay to avoid. Isn't that remarkable? And yet, of course, we probably wouldn't be so surprised, maybe about the electric shocks, but to hear that that wasn't easy. And yet... The interesting thing is they weren't actually told to not think, which is what meditators think is what's the difficult thing about what we're doing here. Or well, some meditators seem to, at least from conversations I've had on occasion. Um, they were actually told to think. They were allowed to think. Thinking wasn't being given any sort of bad press in this experiment. And the interesting thing is, it's actually really painful to be left with our thoughts and our minds if our mind isn't actually trained and skillful in handling that thinking process. It's actually really painful to us. And it's interesting how, and this happens, and it may have been happening here already, but even when we, or I, or teachers, my teachers, and us here as teachers, endeavor to give an instruction that doesn't say you shouldn't think and thinking is bad, we easily internalize the instruction that says be mindful, be present, be awake, connect with your body, as somehow affirming this inner position that I shouldn't be thinking, thinking is bad. And really what it comes out of is our unnoticed experience that thinking is painful when it's unrestrained, when it's just driven by the forces of reactivity that so often govern the thinking process in ourselves and in others. And so... What we're concerned with or what we're engaged with here is not so much the fact of thinking itself, but what happens in relationship to it. And the way we could understand this is um, perhaps usefully illustrated by the uh, response of one of the uh, great reforming teachers of Thailand in the 20th century, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was also not the teacher I met, but the teacher of one of my teachers. And he was once asked, how would you describe the world? He responded very concisely, and it seems to me precisely. He said, lost in thought. Lost in thought. This is the world. Much of the time it's the world we live in. It's sometimes, maybe often, it's the world we ourselves are inhabiting. And what's important to understand, it's the lostness that is of concern to us as practitioners, as meditators, as beings who are interested in, in well-being, in peace, and freedom. It's not the thought per se. Thought is to be understood. But it's the tendency to become lost in things, in experience. And thinking is a place we are commonly lost so our practice is really founded on the capacity we have to know where we are and to respond to the fact 
that we lose contact with that knowing by re-establishing it, by settling ourselves into that knowing where we are again and again and again. And there's a, again, there's, there's a story that I think illustrates the the situation quite well, um, of a of a uh, a wealthy and uh, well-known businessman who had to go for a meeting somewhere in a, a small country town that he didn't actually know the way to, and then driving to this meeting in his, uh, I imagine, large and comfortable vehicle, he got lost, like really lost. He had no idea where he was. He and um, his sat nav system stopped responding at some point so eventually he saw a farmer working on his field and he came up to the farm he pulled up his car got out and said to the farmer can you tell me my good man can you tell me um the name of this road and the farmer said i'm sorry no i actually don't know the name of this road i'm not sure it has a name he says well um can you tell me what's the quickest way to get to the um this 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 hall where I have a meeting and I can't remember the name of the hall. So actually, mm, I'd never heard of that hall. I I don't know how to get there. Sorry, I can't help you. And uh, the the businessman who was on the way to his meeting and feeling frustrated because he was late and lost, he said, "Gosh, you don't really seem to know very much at all, do you?" And the farmer looked at him. He said, mm, "That might be right, you know, but I'm not lost." What we easily do when we discover that we're lost or that we're abiding in a condition of lostness some of the time is we kind of start judging or blaming. We might blame all the things that cause me to get lost. All the busyness, the pressure, the demands around us in the world, people and situations. Sure, they're challenging, they're demanding. They're not easy to handle. We might start to blame ourselves. We might think, oh gosh, if I was a better meditator I wouldn't get lost. If I'd learned how to do this, if I'd really understood those instructions or practiced harder or, you know, worked at it more, I wouldn't get lost. And actually, it's really important that we don't start to judge or blame ourselves for the fact of what happens, but just see it for what it is. There's a, there's a beautiful, um, I think the word is maxim from the Stoics, a teaching of the Stoic tradition, which has a, a lot of... Uh, wonderful wisdom in it, which expresses itself like this. It says, the unlearned, untrained person blames others. The one who is learning blames themselves. The one who has learned blames no one. I think it's a very interesting thing. We start off thinking the problem is all out there, then very easily we shift into thinking the problem is all in here. And actually, neither of those are really what's true. It's not that useful to try and pick out and point to the problem in terms of blaming, whether externally or internally. But it's about taking responsibility. Just as the business person, businessman as it was in the story, getting lost. Well, we could worry about why we got lost, how we got lost. But actually the most important thing is to figure out, where am I? What's actually happening? What's going on right here? This is what we're concerned about. This is actually what matters. If we wish to understand, if we wish to transform our life. It's important to know where we are. And this practice is essentially concerned with seeing and understanding 
what's going on in this location that we call where we are. The sense of lostness that I referred to that so often the experience that we find ourselves without realizing it somewhere other than where we imagined or believed we would be. Somehow we become aware of, conscious of, present to the fact that we are in the story of our history or in the fantasies of our future. And we can start to notice and see that there's a kind of a, there are forces operating within us that we could simply characterize in terms of, in terms of fear or aversion, in terms of desire or craving, that, that kind of push and pull us, that pull us into the future, or that compel us to be looking into the past to understand it in order to either replicate the things that we liked about our past or avoid repl- replicating the things we didn't like about our past, although we found difficult. We live so much of our life lost in the past, lost in the future. And we're lost in those places because they don't really exist, because we don't really see what's going on. Of course, we can learn a lot from the past, and we need to learn from our experience. We do need to give attention at times to the future, when none of us would have got here if we couldn't think about the future. We wouldn't have made it to the sitting, we wouldn't have got to the retreat. But to know where we are when we're doing that. There's so much pressure that's operating so much of the time, it seems, this movement towards to gain, to get, to keep, to hold on to, to reproduce certain experiences, or to get rid of, to avoid, to push away, to not have to be impacted by or impinged upon by certain experiences. And obviously, in the first case, those experiences we like. And in the second case, those experiences we don't like, we find difficult. And this goes on for us as human beings. This goes on for us. This isn't something that's necessarily going to come to an end at the end of a seven or eight. I'm not sure how many days we count this as. Maybe a nine-day retreat. I think it's nine nights, isn't it? Eight days. Whichever way you count it. It's probably not going to have come to the end at the end of this retreat, that tendency. And I don't want to have disappointed you by telling you that, but... Um, There's a story I remember really enjoying hearing that His uh, Holiness the Dalai Lama told of a visit he made to a... um, It was certainly a Christian, and I think it might have been a Trappist monastery, but I'm not sure if I've got that piece right. But the monastery was rather um, well known for and proud of the fact that it made these remarkable award-winning cheeses that they sold all around the country, all, all over America these cheeses were sold. And they were really exquisite and refined. And they also made fruitcake and sold it at the local market. Um, it wasn't something that had greater reputation. But His, His Holiness described this visit to the monastery where every... I wasn't there, I heard the story related secondhand. Um, where every time they stopped and paused, they'd bring him a piece of this cheese or that cheese. These amazing cheeses. And he said, you know, they kept offering me these pieces of cheese. And all day, I just wanted a piece of cake. You know, do we recognize ourselves in that? Do we see how, even if we actually like cheese, just knowing there's cake and we haven't been given any, we might be going, where's the cake? Where's the cake? I'd like some cake. We do that so much, don't we? There's this, almost this kind of pressure that plays out in our lives, in our hearts, in our bodies, and certainly here on retreat, to, to somehow get somewhere, to somehow get something, or 
in a more sort of fundamental way, to become someone or something other than what we are, to get something we don't have, or to be, get somewhere that we're not. This kind of sense of a leaning towards something that we imagine will be our fulfillment, our completion, our satisfaction. And it just goes on and on and on. This The sense of needing to find something, to get something, to get somewhere, it just goes on and on and on. And we can see on a retreat how sometimes, you know, we're sitting. And have you ever noticed that experience where the bell hasn't rung? And you're thinking, hmm, we've been here a while, haven't we? It would be really good if the bell would ring soon, you know, because this is probably enough for me. And, you know, maybe, has, has that guy up there fallen asleep, you know? He's not moved for a while. He could have fallen asleep. You know, we start to get quite enthusiastic about the sitting coming to an end. And then the bell rings. Great, how wonderful. It's walking time. You know, we get out there walking, walking, still walking. Look at our watch. Ten minutes only? That was only ten minutes? Oh, God, I can't wait for the next sitting. You know, this thing we were desperate to get out of, pretty soon it becomes a thing I can't wait. The next sitting, great. Of course, the sitting, same thing happens. And then we start thinking, maybe the standing or maybe the yoga. Even in the yoga, you know, at some point we might think, gosh, it's quite a long session of yoga. I'm a bit tired, you know, we finished yet? Can I sneak out? Is it all right? You know? This way in which we keep looking to the next thing, imagining that it will do it, but as soon as we're there, before we know it, we're so quickly and easily looking beyond it to something other. And it's exhausting. It's frustrating, and there's no rest in it. There's nowhere in that process we can really settle. We can breathe out. We can go, oh, I'm here. Because we're constantly looking to where we're not. For the hope that it'll provide either the things that are missing from where I am or relief from and escape from the things that are present where I am that I'm struggling to include. So what is it that's really important here for us? What is it that you truly value? And we invited you to reflect a little bit on that in the opening opening talk and to even just give us some time to sense or connect with uh, what it is that moved you or brought you here. And again, these are expression, there's going to be some expression of something that's important to us and what brings us here. In fact, there's always, in every single thing we ever do, everything we ever did, everything we ever will do, and, exa- and what we're doing here, there'll be in some way we are expressing something that we or a response to something we think that's of value or of importance. And hopefully you're here not because someone told you that you should be, or because it's just on the schedule, because there's some, some interest in hearing teachings. You know, we're, we're really fortunate to be in a situation where we can bring ourselves into a circumstance such as this. And I include myself in this. I'm really enjoying hearing the others, what they have to... I sometimes even enjoy listening to myself. It gets a little worrying, because, um, you know, that could just keep going on and on, couldn't that? But... Uh, I attempt to restrain it. But sometimes I say something, oh gosh, that was interesting. I hadn't said it like that or heard it like that before. And there's something that touches us in what we hear. Something that touches us in the Dharma and the teachings. And what is it that we value? You know, what is it that we are drawn to discover, to learn, to understand? No, we've, we, again, we touched on this last night. 
We could call it peace, happiness, well-being, freedom. We could talk about love, truth, joy, presence, openness, communion, unity. There's many words we could use. But the world we live in, of course, gives us very different and other messages than the movement towards that which is really important. It's much more about what will serve the mechanisms of our, in a way, material and commercially oriented culture. Production and consumption. What actually gets us more things. You know, we know... I, I'm not telling you this is something I expect you don't know. I can't imagine why you'd have turned up here for nine days without some idea that that might have its limitations, that orientation, that getting more things. You, you know you're not going to get a lot of things here. You know, One of the great things about practice is that it doesn't produce more things. And actually the world doesn't need more things, and neither do we. Though sometimes things are useful. We're not knocking them. But what happens for us with that orientation whereby we kind of have the sense that, you know, getting more things is the answer, would be the response. We might see through the, the shallowness of that in the worldly level where we recognize the need to take care of what's needed and even a little bit of what we might like or enjoy. That's fine. That's okay. But when we turn to spiritual practice, when we engage in meditation, that maybe that what starts to happen quite subtly is that we bring a similar kind of attitude, a kind of a gaining mind, into the process of the meditation, or a or a a mind that's oriented towards pursuing and avoiding experience. Because this is really what materialism's all about. It's about trying to get enough things or control of enough things or enough people so that we can make our experience be a way that we would wish it to be and not be otherwise than that. So we are pursuing experience, avoiding experience. And what that's really about is an attempt to somehow control our inner experience by controlling the outer context and circumstance or as we turn to meditative processes and practices to try and control our more subtle inner experience by somehow controlling our, I could say, more, more gross or less subtle experience. And we, we noted in the, in the Q&A how that tendency can go towards trying to somehow control the mind, as if this is what meditation was about. We can't control our experience. This is a fundamental reality. So far as we play out the attempt to do so through meditation, we're in a certain way just doing a more refined and subtle version of what we do in our lives. And actually, the truth of it is, we all will do that. I've done it. Probably some of you have done it. Maybe many of us, all of us. But actually, I think all of us probably do. The thing about meditation that's different is that we start to notice that that's what we're doing, which is really great. That's what meditation's about. It's noticing what's happening. It's not actually so bad that we do it. It's not that we've done it wrong that we did that, that we started to try and use meditation to try and get certain kind of experiences or get rid of others. But that hopefully at some point we notice that that process goes on forever 
It never comes to an end. It never comes to the point where we've got the experience packaged and organized in the way that we want it to be. Because even if we did, it would stop actually giving us what we hope it would give us. And mostly it doesn't stay the same, it changes. We know that. I had this very, uh, I guess it was, I would say, salutary insight when I was a teenager growing up in a small country town in New Zealand where there weren't a lot of uh, refined forms of entertainment available, shall we say. Um, and so mostly what we did, and some of you might be familiar with this kind of culture, is we, we played rugby and we drank beer. And we spent a lot of time at the pub of an evening um, sitting around drinking, getting sometimes, you know, quite drunk, and telling ourselves what a great time we were having. And what a great time we had the last time we did this. And what a great time we were going to have the next time we did this. And I remember at some point just noticing that I wasn't enjoying it. And I didn't really enjoy it the last time. And actually, it was really fun telling ourselves what a great time we were having, but we weren't actually having a great time. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's what's going on, isn't it? And I don't know if you recognize that. We're kind of telling ourselves how good it was to do something or how good it will be if we do it some more. But actually, if we check in with the real-time experience, it's not that good. Not always, anyway. Have you noticed how we start looking for entertainment while we're here? Have you noticed how it's hard to just be with the simplicity of a, a relatively unexciting situation? You know, we encourage you to read the notice board now and then to see if anything's gone up there. But <laughs> sure, that's okay. But most of us have read it pretty close to memorized it by the first day. We've read it that many times. Now, I find myself amazed at the amount of interest I can take in the detailed information on the label of a tea bag <laughs> when I'm on retreat. It's like, this is interesting, so it seems. Well, clearly it's not. There's nothing on it of any significance. But we kind of, we have this kind of hunger, this kind of looking for, this kind of somehow imagining that something is going to do it for me. If I just get to the place or find the variation, the configuration of things, of experience, meditative or worldly, whatever, that then I'll kind of ah, be done. And so there's this classic story, which I imagine some of you will know, and I certainly enjoy to tell it, uh, and not infrequently, uh, concerning Mullah Nasruddin. And Mullah Nasruddin is a, a Sufi teaching figure, though he's also sometimes used in the... Um, and some other Indian traditions. Uh, but he's uh, both a wise man and a fool, although we might perhaps suspect that his foolishness is simply a way of waking us up to our own. But on this occasion, Nasruddin is uh, sitting at the corner of the village square on market day with a large pile of red-hot chilies in front of him. And he's eating these chilies, and he's just eating them one after another. And his, his face is kind of red, and he's, he's kind of distressed. It doesn't look good. And his friend, a couple of friends come up and say, Mullah, Mullah, which is like a respectful way of addressing a, a, a person of his, uh, of his role and status. And Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? 
And Nazareth picks up another chili, bites into it, and you know he shudders with the impact of the heat and the chilies. His nose is running, his eyes are streaming. He's clearly very distressed. And he says, I'm eating these chilies. And they say, Mullah, Mullah, of course we can see that you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? And he smiled, looked at them, he said, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. And so we have this question here. It's like, if the experiences we've had, either in our lives or on our cushion, or in any other context, if in and of themselves they haven't given us lasting satisfaction, do we really imagine that another one, a different version of the same thing is going to do that? Do we still believe that? That we'll find the sweet chili amongst the pile of red hot chilies? The nature of chilies is red chilies is that they're hot and they burn. It is not their nature to be sweet. That's just not what's going to happen for this guy. We know that. It's obvious. But there's something quite compelling about the hope that the next one might do it for me. So this is your life here. This is your life. This is an opportunity to look at, to see your life. To see it really fully and deeply and clearly in a way that can transform it. Not that that journey of transformation is something we're going to get finished in a moment, but it can begin right now. It's already begun, I'm sure. For some of you I know, you're well established in this journey. And yet it's good to come back and just check where are we with this. What are we making the priority of our life? And what are we making the priority of our being here? What are we doing with this opportunity? This precious existence that we have. You know, there's that old saying that says, nobody ever lay on their deathbed wishing they'd spent more time in the office. And yet so easily we can spend so much of our time doing things we feel we need to do, but that don't necessarily go to what is most important for us. Sure, we need to take care of our livelihoods and take care of families, responsibilities. Now, I'd question that, I'd rephrase that, nobody ever lay on their deathbed wishing they'd spent more time in their office, unless what they did in their office was what they loved. And then they might. And probably... Here, we can just take a moment, just pause a moment. And not with any judgment or need for feeling that somehow we should have done it differently, but just from where we are right here, say, okay, what do I want to give my life to? And for myself, I had a very both painful and powerful support in that shift and that movement in my life when I was living in New Zealand still and working in a kind of high-powered professional situation that I wasn't enjoying. In fact, I was miserable. I was pretty clear that I didn't want to do it, but I was also kind of scared of what my life might be if I let go of this because I didn't have anything else that could hold me in a sort of material or financial way. I didn't have anything behind me in terms of resources or family in that sense. And 
couldn't quite find the courage to step out until really tragically a dear friend of mine who I'd grown up with and who'd been my best friend um, and whose family had kind of given me a place to be when my family had come apart, he died. We were in our early 20s. And uh, there's a lot that I learned in the loss of that dear friend, Radar, his name was. But one of the things that it offered me that is really one of the biggest gifts he gave me apart from his friendship was that he, he gave me a very clear message. He said, do it now. He didn't say it in words, but I got that from the fact that his life ended just like that, age 23. And, uh, and I said, okay, I can't wait till some other time to do what I want to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm not even sure what it's going to be, but I do know that it's not this. We don't always know what it is that we actually want or need to be doing, but sometimes we know what we need to stop doing and then see what comes. And here, in terms of the meditative practice, what we can perhaps start to see that something we could usefully begin to, not so much stop doing as an imperative, but to start to stop giving our energy and support to, is the tendency to believe that somewhere else, or something else, or becoming someone else other than what we already are, is somehow what our life needs to be about. Because ultimately, what we need to know, what we need to understand, what we're really drawn in our hearts of hearts to discover, is already here. And yet, not in the way we might imagine or conceive. So there's a, a certain openness that's asked of us here, to not necessarily know what the, what the way to do this is, but perhaps just to question the ways that we might have already tried, if they haven't actually brought us to where we might have hoped they would. Not rejecting or judging, you know, it's our journey of learning that we see what works along the way. We don't start off knowing that. So there's a poem by Mary Oliver. I think this talk's got a few of my favourite things in it, so I won't sing the song, don't worry. Um, but it's the summer day, some of you may know. And Mary Oliver, she writes, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale fo forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed. How to, stroll through, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last, and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? 
So we have to have an exploratory spirit, a sense of, okay, let's see what makes sense here. Let's see what happens if we try something different that maybe I haven't done already. And it's so important, the sense of exploration. We can have the kind of really unfortunate message given to us that once we hit, I don't know, 18, 20, 25, 17, I'm not sure where it happens to us, but basically we get the idea or we're given the message, we should have figured it out by now and we should have grown up because we are physically grown up and therefore that's it. Anything we do from here that goes wrong is obviously because we're a complete basket case because we should know how it works, isn't it? Isn't that the kind of message we get? It's all right when you're a kid to make mistakes, but as an adults, we have to acknowledge that we're still learning. We're still growing. That's what waking up is all about. And so giving ourselves the space to explore, which means the possibility of not knowing quite exactly what we're doing and sometimes choosing options that aren't what ultimately turn out to be the ones we want to continue with or follow. And not giving ourselves a hard time about how that process plays out. And it's, uh, it's, 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 I think, very well illustrated by the, the story of a Zen student who goes to meet the great master from, from their tradition. This is the, the most venerable um, master of this particular le- Zen um, lineage. And the, the student who'd been practicing for quite a number of years was very excited to have the opportunity to, to ask just two or three questions of the master very formal short interview that that was offered and so he go, goes to the offer sorry goes to the um goes to the master and bows down and the master she's sitting there just like a rock just upright like full of presence and not unkindly but not looking like she's sort of about to give him a hug you know and he's sort of master master um can you tell me what's the most important thing to cultivate to develop she says, hmm, discernment, good judgment. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, he says, thank you, thank you. Uh, how, how do you develop discernment and good judgment? Experience. Oh, yes, of course, of course. Yes, of course, that's obvious. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you get Experience. Bad judgment. (laughs) Lack of discernment. Isn't that how it works? Is there any other way it's ever worked? If we see that, then of course actually we can honour the process of our learning and the mistakes we make along the way as an inevitable part of what it means to be growing in our lives and to keep growing, to have the willingness to leave or to allow our life to be an expression of something that's open rather than trying to close it and shut it down and box it up and package it and say, it's this and I'm just going to do it and if that doesn't work, I'll try doing it harder and faster and more of the same thing. Because that's often the way we respond when something we try doesn't work. We think, well, I'll just do it harder. It must be I didn't try hard enough. You know, meditation is a place this plays out sometimes. No, maybe we need to understand, oh, maybe I've taken this on in a way that isn't useful. There isn't a blueprint or a a one-size-fits-all map here. We have to listen and be willing to question our assumptions or our sometimes resistances 
to practice, to instructions, to teaching. But at the same time, we need to listen to ourselves and say, okay, what's really happening? What's true? What's useful? And somewhere between those two extremes, where we don't just follow our own thoughts and patterns and ideas and, and make them the only thing that's determining what happens, but nor do we just follow what we're told or what we hear. Somewhere between the two, respecting the power of both the teachings, but also the power of the truth of our own experience. And this we actually find that process of learning unfolding. So one of the thing the Buddha one thing that Buddha spoke of, encouraged and invited again and again, was that we we consciously connect with that which is wholesome, with that which actually has a quality of goodness that brings a sense of brightness or uplift to our heart. Sure, we do need to acknowledge, and in Dharma teachings we often speak about, those things that are difficult, that are challenging, the very fact that we struggle in life in different ways, that sometimes we enact patterns, just as I was speaking just now, patterns of sort of habitual behaviors that don't really serve us so well. We need to see that, that kind of looking for, seeking for something other. But we also need to really be able to recognize and to honor the goodness and the deep caring from which this activity comes. The sense of of kindness, the sense of restraint that we express sometimes in our day, in our lives, the aspirations that we bring here. All these things are really important, are really beautiful, and really worthy of being acknowledged and of being honored. Because this practice is very much centering around this capacity we have to attend to things. And there's very much a refinement and a training of that capacity to connect with, to be in relationship with experience. And of this, you know, the Buddha said that what we give attention to And how we attend to those things that we give attention to. It is this that primarily shapes our world. It's this that actually primarily shapes our experience of being in the world. What we give attention to and how we attend to it. And of course, what we give attention to and how we intend to it are very much informed by our views by our attitudes, by our habits and our patterns. And so we're in a process of cultivating, of developing, of training the attention to see that when we're not caught in habitual patterns of reactivity, that we have the opportunity to make skillful, wise choices and responses to start to see what is it that leads towards well-being and what is it? that leads away from it? What is it that gives rise to suffering, to disconnection, to alienation? What is it that leads to a sense of uplift, to a sense of intimacy, to a sense of presence, of peacefulness, of openness or freedom? And this is a learning, this is a process we go through that takes time, that takes time. We need to give ourselves time. And to relate in a kindly way to the process. Sometimes the mind is really agitated, reactive, restless. And we kind of try and rein it in, hold it in, gather it in, trying to somehow keep it here, trying to keep it here. 
And really, what's more useful than trying to keep it here is just keep noticing where it went and invite it back. And we could perhaps reflect on the uh, sort of the, uh, I'm not quite sure if it's an error. Anyway, the saying from India, a sort of wisdom saying, is it an aphorism? I'm not sure what the thing is we use to describe this sort of thing. But it, anyway, it, it presents as a question that says, how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant? Now, a rogue bull elephant can trample any fence you will build. That's the nature of such a beast. So how do you fence one in? And this, how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant? You put it in a really, really, really large field. And then it doesn't need to trample the fence down. So one of the things we tend to do, and we might notice, is that when the mind is more active, we tend to somehow just try to contract or compress it, trying to hold it. And actually seeing, can I actually give it space? Can I give it room? That isn't meaning we're going to follow it or chase it, but that we allow the body to be a broad framework, an open framework, in which we can keep coming back, reconnecting and establishing ourselves. Without judging, without reacting to the activity of the mind, neither following it, nor trying to suppress it, but seeing that there's a place of balance that's immediately available when we see, when we recognize how this process works. And it's not just the process of meditation. It's the process of life we're concerned with here, of which meditation is a window into and a vehicle through. But it's not separate from, not apart from. So the, the spirit of our practice here is not about whether we like it or it's fun, whether it's what we wanted or as we thought it should be, but what can I learn from this process? How can I grow through this process? You know, sometimes it seems like such hard work to be present, to be mindful, to come back. We just think, oh, I've had enough, you know. God, you know, I can't do this. It's hopeless. We kind of want to give up sometimes. And it's so often, you know, we see the mind moving and moving and moving again. I think it's beyond me. You know, maybe other people can do it. You know, maybe it works for others, but it's not going to work for me. And sometimes people will kind of, you know, report sort of kind of looking around, seeing everybody else is like, wow, they're all sitting so still, so calm. You know, it's like, gosh, here we are. There's like, you know, 99 imminently awakening Buddhas <laughs> And one overcooked vegetable, just, you know. And that's what we think is really happening. Of course, having come to that conclusion, probably, you know, sitting there relatively motion, motionless, probably quite despondent, but someone next door might just feel a bit restless, look over and think, wow, that person's sitting really still. Wow, they must be really peaceful. You know, we don't know what's going on for each other, but mostly what's going on for each other isn't that different than what's going on for us because we're human beings and it seems like it's such hard work you know it takes a lot of dedication a lot of patience as we said earlier you know you know i, I mean it when i bow at the end of a sitting it's like this is not an easy thing to do it's worthy of our respect. And you know, difficult and challenging as it is to make that effort to come back, to begin again, to connect with what's here, to let go of our 
patterned habitual reactivities of wanting to push away certain experiences that we find uncomfortable, scary, threatening, or somehow sort of challenging to our sense of who we'd like to think we are or like to appear to be. Or the tendency to want to pursue, to grab, to grasp those things we find pleasurable, enjoyable, or somehow um, flattering or uplifting to our sense of who we think we are or who we'd like to think we are or be. Much as it is challenging to kind of keep on doing the simple work of that noticing and unhooking and coming back and reconnecting, and it seems like hard work, you know. We get to the end of the day, and it's like, oh, tired. Has anyone felt tired? You know, thought, gosh, this is quite a long. Anyone? Yeah. End of the day. You know, yeah, yeah. I do too. Sometimes the end of the day. If you describe to your friends at home who've never done this, what's been going on? Oh, we sat on a kind of soft cushion for three quarters of an hour. We didn't have to do anything. We got up. We ambled back and forth really slowly. From we sat down again. Then we got up and we stood around for a little while. Didn't do anything. Sat down again. They fed us breakfast. They fed us lunch. They fed us dinner. We had to do an hour's work period. It was pretty stressful. Um, our friends are going to look at it and say, "How did you get tired?" But of course, it is tiring. It is challenging because we are going counter. We're going in a contra-orientation to the momentum and a lot of forces that are actually flowing through our consciousness, that are flowing around us as well in the world. And so we're kind of doing the work of trying to stay in one place that's involved in standing in a strong stream or a strong current. Yeah, It's hard work to go nowhere in that condition. And so we're not trying to go somewhere, we're just trying to see, can I stay here? Or can I come back here every time I get washed downstream a little way? The great thing is that even if you get washed downstream, you're still there. As soon as you realize where you are, you're still here. We don't actually, actually go anywhere else. We just forget that we haven't gone somewhere else and imagine that we have. And what we start to notice over time, and this comes slowly, but it's not beyond what we might have even noticed in one day. And certainly we'll have opportunity to notice over the days. That although it is hard work to make that genuine, steady, gentle, and yet wholehearted effort to reconnect, to come back, to begin again, actually the truth of it is, it's much more difficult to live our life unconsciously. To live our life carried, battered and bashed against the rocks and swirled in the currents of unconscious momentums with all that that involves. So although it is challenging, actually, this is the easy option. Yeah? And just like any form of training, to begin with, it's more work. But as we settle into it, it actually starts to flow more easily. And how that looks for each of us will be different. There isn't a timetable, there isn't a map of where you should be now or where you're supposed to be at some point along the way. But what we can trust is the orientation. If we turn in a certain direction and move in that direction so far as we're able, which is the direction towards being where we are and opening into what is here. There's this old saying that goes something along the lines, if you keep going in the direction you're headed, you're going to get there. Now that equally goes for our patterns of unskillful behavior. If we keep doing that, we're going to end up where that goes, which is, as in Nazareth's story, a kind of distressing experience of being on fire. And we maybe know that a little. But at the same time, 
when we start saying no actually i don't need to pick that up i don't need to push that away what i'm being called on to do is to inhabit this experience right here just as it is as fully as i can with as much kindness and interest as i can bring to bear but most fundamentally with just the willingness to be here in this as we settle as we deepen into this presence this wakefulness, this gatheredness of heart and mind that is in contact with life, in relationship to where we are, and yet not bound to any particular place or expression of that. As we start to settle into this more deeply, we start to feel the natural sense of possibility for well-being, for peace, for a quality of uplift of heart, of mind, and of our life, in fact, to be touched, and ultimately to settle into that which isn't defined by the experiences that come and go, that isn't dependent on whether we like them or don't like them, but that is really much more to do with the potential of our heart and mind for wakefulness itself for presence, for contact, for connection. For not holding ourselves apart from life and ultimately dissolving fully back into it and into the way things are. That has its own natural harmony and peace even with the chaos, the conflict and the challenges that continue at times to present. So this is at least some of the aspects of what it is, as I see our practice is all about here. And so let's just sit quietly for a few moments together. And so may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to to become more deeply in contact with that which is most important to us. May we abide ever more deeply in the, the living present that unfolds unstoppably. And may we come to rest in the awakened nature of, of our life and all of life, in peace and in freedom, for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings.
So thank you for your presence here and for your practice. Please continue. There's some 20 minutes now for walking meditation, then at uh, 10 minutes to 9 we'll have our last sitting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.